Hey, it's Lucas. Quick word of caution. We say a naughty word in this episode, and we say it a lot. So if that is a problem for you or anyone else under the sound of my voice, skip ahead past about the 15-minute mark. You are in Roothold, which is in the plane of elemental chaos. And after a lot of adventuring, tunneling through sheetrock, you arrive at an enormous hall made of onyx, ruby quartz, and glimmering star sapphires. Sitting on the throne is a hulking muscular man carved of rock with dancing gemstone eyes. He laughs as he braids the hair of the goddess lounging in his lap. Luthic, the Blood Moon Witch. Her body, though hardened from battle, is relaxed into his, her face radiating sheer joy. That is, of course, until she notices you. Welcome back to Making a Monster. This episode, I'm bringing on some guests I've been hoping to reach since day one of the project, believe it or not. Uncaged Volume 1, released to the DMs Guild, D&D's online storefront for user-created content in June of 2019. Each adventure subverts tropes around a female mythological creature, including hags, harpies, and medusas. And it was a sign that D&D players were hungry for nuanced, thoughtful explorations of RPG monsters and the marginalized myths that inspired them. And that volume has since sold more than 5,000 copies. The team is now working on their fifth volume of Uncaged Anthologies, this time focusing on goddesses. And that volume is set to be released on February 22nd. So with me are Jess Markram, writing director and adventure author for Uncaged, and David Markuski, producer and project manager. Welcome to the show, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. So tell me a little bit about you. How long have you been playing Dungeons & Dragons? Yeah, I started playing D&D just at the tail end of 4th edition. About I got about six months into a campaign and then realized that 5th edition was a little faster to run and swapped over to that and pretty much ever since. I got halfway through character creation for 3.5 and then <laughs> that game ended up not happening. And then I didn't play again until I was almost 30 <laughs> and <laughs> got into role-playing and not with D&D actually, with Tunnels and Trolls of all things. And then started playing some Dark Sun and didn't really look back. <laughs> I haven't heard the name Dark Sun in a long time. That's one of those settings that didn't really make it to 5th edition officially, did it? No, but I wish, I, I, I hope that it can. There's a lot of fun there. When did you guys make the switch from playing the game to writing for it? Is this a part of uh, what you do in your day job? I'm a social worker slash trauma therapist in my day job. The first thing I ever wrote for game design was actually Uncaged Volume 1. And now I have two full-time jobs. I think I had been DMing for about four months before I started writing something for DMs Guild. Started off with like a little pay-what-you-want adventure. I think it was in 2016 or 2017 it was when I wrote it. I'm so experienced, David. <laughs> that would have been right after the DMs Guild went live. You're, you're on the vanguard. 
And then after that, I think Gimbal's Guide to the Feywild was my next big thing and the last thing that I wrote before getting in with Uncaged. And you guys are just a small part of a team. By the time we're now working on Volume 5, how many people are involved in this? So in Goddesses, we have just over 70. I think we have 72 if, if we add all of our sensitivity readers, artists, editors, proofreaders. I think the original volumes were about 150 people total. It sounds about right, because I think we only had like 30 artists for all four of those volumes. Which is bananas to me. That's well, wild. Yeah, it's that more bananas right that we have that many artists for goddesses. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> goddesses has such good art, though. <laughs> Who's the, the core team? I've spoken on a previous episode to Ashley Warren, and I corresponded briefly with Gwen Bassett setting this up. Is there anyone else in kind of the core creative team whose name I might know? Yeah, so Gwen Bassett and I are the project managers on Goddesses. Jess has the writing director, and we also have an editing director as well, Laura Evans, who kind of managed and coordinated all of our editing and proofreading efforts. And Ashley's kind of our producer emeritus. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Ashley hasn't been as much involved in like the nuts and bolts of creating the fifth volume. We kind of took that on from her, but she's been here to guide us through everything. Can you guys break down for me how you put this set of adventures together? Yeah, so it started mostly with the the pitching phase. We got over 200 pitches. I think 221 pitches total is how many oh we got. Gosh. And we were originally only planning on having 20 adventures in the book. And we ended up adding an extra one on there just because we got so many good ones. But part of what our, we had a a team of people to review the pitches because there were so many of them and each one was over three or 400 words. So we had eight different people that were kind of scoring the pitches. And one of the (laughs) things that were criteria we scored on was how much does this sort of align with what Uncaged is about? How Uncaged-y is this? And that (laughs) kind of got into like feminist representations and twisting on tropes and representing things that aren't normally represented. All that kind of got in there. And can, like, if this is an evil character, can they still have good reasons for being evil without it being like, surprise, they were good all along, actually? (laughs) Exactly. And I think that like, we really especially tackled that in the next phase once we kind of chose our pitches and brought all the authors on board we had everyone write outlines and Jess in particular, but also the rest of the admin team spent some time going through all the outlines and offering that kind of feedback on like, okay, well, we'll need to push this a little bit more in this direction, a little bit more in that direction. And then once we got into the actual writing, then I think Jess got into the nuts and bolts of some of the adventures. Our tagline for this was basically just because she's evil doesn't mean she doesn't have her reasons or something (laughs) it was phrased nicer but that that's kind of how it was every villain has her reasons there we go thank you and just like how uncaged thing was every monster has her story kind of thing and so we really wanted to stick with their villains but they also have their reasons and Our team that David mentioned to review pitches was us on the admin team, but also a diverse group of people who had been involved with Uncaged before, like previous writers and artists on it. And then also people who had not been involved with Uncaged before, but were very familiar with it. 
So like people who have run a million adventures from Uncaged. <laughs> so we could get like people who knew what we were looking for and have a good idea of also what what sounds like a fun adventure for you. Yeah, fantastic. And I guess in the spirit of continually editing down, I know we've chosen one monster in particular for today. And I suppose I should pause to kind of address the phrasing here. I'm using the word monster in the sense in which Dungeons and Dragons uses it. That is anything with a stat block. I'm going to be conflating goddess and monster in this conversation. And I don't think there's anything I can really do to avoid that. If it has a stat block, it can be killed. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Which is why some of... The goddesses in this don't have stat blocks. The ones you encounter in their throne room. Some of the authors were like, you cannot kill her. Here's things she can do to you, though. Interesting. So so does, I'm going to spoil it a bit. Does Luthic have a stat block then? Or are we operating in this kind of non-mechanical, non-combat space? She has a big, chonky stat block. <laughs> she has a two full-page stat block. Oh my gosh. She is CR 30. She does a lot of things. When you were building Luthic, is she a conversion from an older edition? Does she appear elsewhere in D&D lore? Or or was she spun out of whole cloth for uncaged anthologies? So she, despite having a lot written about her, I could not find any stats on her in previous (laughs) editions. There's just a lot of lore over five editions that describe what she can do and how she does it. And so I took all of those powers and put them into her stat block. So her big things are that she has claws that can extend to be 10 feet long or eight feet long. She can bore through solid rock. She can fly. She can cause blood rain that weakens her foes and incite a frenzy that strengthens her wounded allies that makes them stronger. She can inflict terrible diseases on others and make everyone around her vulnerable to disease. And she can heal wounds as long as she's touching the ground because her boyfriend, whose home she is at, is the god of earth. She also can't be paralyzed, petrified, blinded, or deafened if she is touching the ground. (laughs) Naturally. (laughs) Of course. So I gave her a lot of stuff to do that, you know, ties into that. Plus just stuff you get from being a god. What role did she genuinely fill? Or or rather, where did you find her in these older stories? Luthic gets really poorly treated in a lot of the lore because she does all of this really cool stuff. She gives the orcs like visions of the blood moon, which incites them to battle and makes them into warriors. She's there when every orc is born. She's there when every orc dies. And yet she's really ignored by most orcs and just seen as like Grumish's wife and disregarded by the rest of the pantheon, most of which are her children. So her (laughs) husband and her children all treat her like trash. And the orcs, except for like her clerics, who are called the Orc Claws of Luthic, all also kind of are like whatever about her. But it's canon that she's like the smartest person in the (laughs) pantheon and the only one who's good at battle strategy. 
she's also the only one who knows how to heal, apparently. So, you know, she she does all this and doesn't get any credit. And so this adventure is her acknowledging that she needs a little bit of credit. Let's talk about Luthic as a goddess, because D&D has a particular way of handling divinity, assigning them to domains, which is not something that every religion has done, nor the ones that do consistently throughout history. If we were to assign Luthic a domain, how would you do that? And what would you say falls within her purview? She has two, actually. She's the life domain and the nature domain. But for our purposes in the book, she's in the life domain. When we were working on the book, we looked at all of the neutral and evil goddesses, and most of them fell into life death and trickery was that right it's kind of interesting in like the previous uncaged books the adventures were broken up by tier but since this time they're all tier four we couldn't really do that and especially because the difference between level 17 and level 19 isn't very apparent in a tier four adventure so level ranging them wasn't great so we ended up breaking the whole book into domains and what we found when we were doing that was that a lot of the domains that get assigned to the gods or the goddesses don't always 100% make sense. They kind of go like anything this goddess has ever done that is trickery. Oh yeah, they tricked somebody. They must be a trickery domain. Oh, they grew something or they healed somebody. They must be life domain. It's so weird. (laughs) Yeah. Like the great mother, the primordial beholder goddess is one of the ones that appears in the book. She's assigned like the life domain, the war domain. There were a few random ones for it that just kind of didn't really make sense. <laughs> what does that tell you about D&D? Well, at one point I did go look and see how many of the goddesses had an epithet that had bitch in it. <laughs> and it was a lot. And I was sad that Luthic didn't have one. So I originally gave her one in the bad ending. And so many editors were like, this is terrible. (laughs) Because I guess if you don't know that like over half of the goddesses have the bitch, whatever, like the sea bitch, the storm bitch, the rage bitch, the night bitch, then, you know, just calling a goddess the something bitch, people are going to be like, wow, harsh. But it's like, no, she she gets to be with all her friends now. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even know that. And I've spent way too much time doing this kind of research. It's the type of quality research that goes into uncaged books. (laughs) I think that was Ashley's original, like, what pushed her to want to do goddesses was seeing that Umberly had two of them. It was like the bitch queen and the sea bitch. (laughs) And she was like, we need a goddesses book to redeem Umberly. (laughs) (laughs) that was the genesis of the uncaged goddesses book was what three years ago in the uncaged discord when we were talking about umberly being called the sea bitch and we were like we need to do a book of uncaged goddesses and then it kind of fell under the radar for a few years until we (laughs) dredged it back out of the sea again what did you want players to to pull from this encounter? What did you want them to feel or to understand in a new way just after having met Luthic? So none of them fought her in the playtest, <laughs> which is why I had David uh, run three different versions of her, I think. But yep. yeah, that seems to be a very uncaged thing, actually, is that you get to the big monster and players tend to like have a conversation instead 
Although I did set a thing so that, like, if you really want to fight, Luthic will fight you and you don't have to kill her because she is very hard to kill. But I just wanted it to be a fun fight, like (laughs) one where her actions kind of work together, like so she can make it rain blood that makes you more weakened to necrotic damage. And then some of her other things do necrotic damage and she can spell cast, but doesn't really need to, but she can, if you know, for whatever she can call on allies who are in the throne room to fight on her behalf. Cause there's people worshiping her and her boyfriend in there. And she can give them advantage on the attack roll because that's, you know, part of her thing is to buff her allies And if you get her down weak enough, she has one of those mythic actions from Theros and she turns into a big cave bear. (laughs) Yeah, that was probably one of my favorite little additions was that cave bear mythic action. Is she connected in some way to sort of the, the cave bear idea? They're one of her sacred animals and she is known to transform into cave bears. So initially I had her starting the fight as a cave bear, but then... After David was running in a bunch, we agreed that it was, uh, I think it was David's suggestion, actually, that it would be more fun if once you get her down to zero hit points, she regains 200 and is a bear now. Yeah. And like the, that whole kind of fight with her, the, probably the best part about running it, at least as a DM and something that all the players really, and I don't know if enjoyed would be the word, was that Luthic was super mobile. And just chased people down at like the, all the casters of the party when I was running it were constantly trying to get away from her and she was just pursuing them and like all the way back and forth across the throne room, no matter if they threw up walls, no matter if they threw up protection spells, she would just chew through it trying to get at them. So that like bringing that cave bear in when you think you finally got her down is like, oh, the chase is finally over. Oh, wait, no, the chase is not over. Yeah, she has 50 feet move speed, 50 foot fly speed, and a burrow speed of 60 feet. Oh my gosh, you cannot hide from Luthic. That's incredible. In playtesting, that was very much like you can't hide was definitely the theme because We'd have wizards that would throw up a wall of force and she would burrow underneath it. You'd have, like, they'd teleport away and she'd do a bonus, like, there was a bonus action for a pursuit, I think. Yeah, she tunnels and knocks everybody around her prone. I think it was a legendary action, actually. But yeah, anyways, she would, every time they'd try and get away, she'd be right on their heels again. So it was definitely a theme of playtesting. Yeah, that was fun. And she can also choose to just ignore spells. Because she's high enough level to do that. I should ask, before we move on from this particular point, I think there's only one officially published CR30 creature. I could be wrong about that, but only one comes to mind. The Tarrasque? Yeah, that's, yeah, (laughs) the big one. This kind of specifically designated as a world-ending catastrophe. The, The point of reference for all other difficulty curves in the game. So when you were designing for a challenge rating that high, what did you have to, what did you have to do to occupy this space at the very top of, of the game's difficulty curve? Oh, there's a couple now. Tiamat is also CR 30, as yeah. is Aspect of Tiamat and Aspect of Bahamut. Yeah, the Tiamat one was one of the 
so like one of the things that I did was kind of go through all the the avatars, goddesses, anyone that got a stat block and try and measure where they were. And Tiamat was actually the, the measuring stick because she's <laughs> pretty much one of the only goddesses that has a stat block currently. So it was kind of like the can be a little bit higher, can be a little bit lower, but should be somewhere around this amount of stuff. But it was also where we a lot of the the extra features that end up making their way into most of the goddess stat blocks come from. So things yeah, like magic, yeah. immunity, and stuff like that. Yeah, I know we took, it wasn't just us, but like Tiamat and Sul Katesh from Eberron were two that I think a lot of people used as references. Possibly Zariel, too, for uh, some of the un more undead goddesses. I know I looked at Orcus for a couple of things, just to kind of figure out how Orcus works. And just for context, Tiamat and Bahamut being the Forgotten Realms, sort of yin and yang of draconic deities... Zariel's the Archduke of Avernus from Descent into Avernus. Sul Katesh from Aberon, one of the great overlords who holds dominion over the world of fear, war, and death. What were some of those things that mechanically belonged only to goddesses that definitely let players and DMs know that that is the caliber of creature with which we're working? Yeah, like limited magic immunity is the one that came, I think it's directly on Tiamat's stat block. And all the different goddesses have some form of either magic resistance or magic immunity to them. The magic weapons, anything they do is going to be a magic attack is another one. Also, disincorporation is a big one that's in Tiamat, but it's like if they drop to zero hit points and die, they don't actually die. They travel back to their domain and then reincorporate at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, everyone would have legendary actions, but also the resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, slashing, I'm pretty sure appears in every single goddess as well. Yeah, I think they all have some kind of absurd immunities and true sight is a big one that everybody mm. has at various degrees. I remember you made me shrink Luthex because... It was hurting all of your casters because I gave her true sight and tremor sense. And you were like, she can't have this much of both. <laughs> yeah, that's that's an interesting interaction. And a lot of this, uh, a lot of those particular mechanics are, are, are encompassing a lot of really interesting literary tropes as far as what they can see and what they can feel and the penetration of illusions. And there's something to be said here about the continual falling off of illusion as a school of magic relative to the rest, but <laughs> that's a different podcast, I think. Yeah, and like I think that's a, it's probably a good point that there's actually like this weird, especially in tier four, because things like true sight and tremor sense, blind sight, they're all a little bit more common, right? Once you get into higher level monsters, but there's like a weird intersectionality of them where they're okay on their own, but as soon as you start stacking them up, they start to remove so many options. And that was something that I think we kind of figured out in the first round of playtesting, where it wasn't the fact that there's something wrong with a monster having Tremor Sense and True Sight, but that when you have them both together, they eliminate all the options. Like, there's, there's no way to kind of trick your way past it once you start stacking them over each other. You're kind of also bumping against the sort of rocks fall and everyone dies trope where 
you're dead because I say so. You're on the razor's edge between having something that you can interact with meaningfully in a combat position and something that's just beyond your ken as an adventurer. Yeah, absolutely. And it really comes to that, like, sure, it makes sense. A goddess should be able to see through your tricks and, like, most of them, but there should still be a way, right? And I think the Tremor Sense one was because during playtesting, I had two players and one of them was trying to go in with a disguise and got saw through. And the other one was like, well, then I'll go underground and like turn it into an earth ent- elemental and earth glide. Well, with Tremor Sense, she could see that too. So it kind of like, we. I think we went through a checklist together of like, these are all the ways that someone might try and approach or trick their way through this. Will any of them work? Some of them probably should work. Yeah, Yeah, we really wanted, not just for Luthek, but for all of the encounters in this to be possible, but difficult. And especially when you're at tier four and you have, I mean, that's ideal for any encounter, but at tier four, when you have so many options at your disposal, the last thing you want is, uh, well, you can't do that because I said so. If the tagline for this is every goddess has the reason, what is Luthic's reason? Oh, I mean, that's kind of what you find out over the course of the adventure. But basically, Oh no, have I asked for uh, spoilers? No, in this, <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I talked about in the author's notes how it was kind of very loosely inspired by the Russian folktale of how the sun was brought back to the sky and also the 90s classic how Stella got her groove back <laughs> because... <laughs> Luthic is kind of fed up of being ignored and mistreated by not just her pantheon, but all of her worshipers and just decides to not one day and leaves and goes to her hot young boyfriend's house and has no intention of returning. And so if adventurers are like, no, people are dying, you have to come back and do your job, then there might be an altercation if they're less than friendly in their approach because you know she doesn't just quit she she like middle fingers up releases the escape hatch on the airplane and <laughs> fires two guns in the air before leaving she she sends a blood rain plague on everybody as she quits her job in epic fashion that's incredible there's there's so much here i i don't think i expected 90s coming of age to match russian folktales but here we are oh gosh the uncaged anthology actually got a lot of press in its early days as kind of the feminist D adventure it seems to me that's something you guys are fairly comfortable with so like in the context of what you're trying to do with uncaged bringing someone like luthic into this what does she contribute to that conversation that none of the other goddesses do I think that all of the the goddesses, and Jess, you can speak to Luthic in particular, but bringing a goddess in, especially a goddess that has is like canonically evil, kind of gives you a different perspective that like feminism in terms of an adventure doesn't just encompass take these things that are evil and make them good or remove their reason for maligning them, that you can still have those, your own motivations, and still tell a story that's still, that's centered on them? Yeah, I think with all of the goddesses, a lot, most of our writers went really deep into the Forgotten Realms lore, which the original Uncaged books didn't so much. Some of them did, 
But a lot of the uncaged adventures were taken directly from fairy tales. And it was flipping fairy tale and mythological tropes. Because these are D&D goddesses, they're taken straight from their lore and addressing issues in their lore. So with Luthix, it's that she's super powerful and super smart and doesn't get any credit. So her adventure is kind of like, why am I putting up with this? It Her acknowledging her own worth and kind of forcing everyone to reckon with that, right? Like, what if you have a really attentive mom who just decides to stop momming one day? Like, what happens? <laughs> Some of the other adventures deal more with trauma the goddesses have undergone and reconciling their relationships with other deities or with their own family, with their pantheon, and some of them who had less lore about them. The authors got to get a little more creative and either invent something cool for them to do or kind of just explore like what their domain could be and aspects of how it works. That was very long-winded. <laughs> no, that's what I'm here for. What are you hoping that this particular adventure with Luthic is going to contribute to people's understanding of their daily lives? I hope that basically everybody who has had to put up with misogynistic nonsense at their work or at their home sees that they have value. Because they might see themselves in Luthic a little bit and realizes that they have value and, and they don't have to put up with it. They can just leave if they want. Or if they want to go back and make things better, they can do that too. Yeah, I know I've asked for probably a master's level thesis that we that we could be writing on this kind of material. But thank you for waiting in. Orcs have had kind of a troublesome history over the course of, of D&D and especially in Forgotten Realms. There was an errata that came out recently that altered some of the lore that had been published. It's kind of changed going into new editions of the game or new printings of some of these monsters. Is there something that you about Luthic that contributes to the conversation around orcs that you would want to make sure we cover? Or is that something that you'd rather leave to, uh, to someone else? I had concerns writing about orcs as a white writer and that was one of the first things that I flagged for sensitivity reading was to have at least one person review the adventure to make sure that I wasn't getting in inadvertently into like tropey things with the depiction of the orcs and like I've always loved orcs because I I'm a tall girl and anytime I see other tall buff women I'm like yes we are the same but (laughs) there's so much more than that uh so yeah I we got really lucky honey and dice sensitivity read for this one she read for a lot of our adventures and was just really lovely and having her insight on this was really helpful so that was that was really great did that process change the way you think about orcs to sort of expand it beyond this sisterhood of tall girls? <laughs> I think, I mean, the big thing was just depicting them as, you know, a 
full people and a full culture. And that's really hard when you also want to focus the goddess herself and <laughs> have only 3,000 words yeah, and are limited. Order. So what I tried to do with this is put in like little bonus things that orcish players, not orcish players, orcish <laughs> characters might know or people who grew up around orcs, but also people who worship Luthic or are really into religion so that it wasn't just like, oh, this is just an orc culture thing. Like nobody else knows this. But, you know, also if you know religion, you might know this. The other ties were like, but if your character is an orc, they might actually know people who are being harmed by what's going on to have that kind of tie there. Like you might run into some family on the way to make it feel more personal to them. But yeah, and, and showing multiple types of NPCs so that it's not depicting a monolith. So it's less orcs are like this and more this orc is like this. We did try and like bring a lot of that same sort of care to all the adventures that we went through or in the book. And like having sensitivity readers is something that's been important throughout all of not just Uncaged, but anything Jess and I have worked on together, I'm pretty sure. So we did bring in sensitive sensitivity readers wherever we thought they might be helpful, even in cases where we were like, probably doesn't need it here, but we'll do it better, <laughs> better to do it than not. So like, I think altogether we had 12 or 14 of the 21 adventures required sensitivity readers for one thing or another. And not just for like the issues with orcs, but anything that that might be triggering or might require more sensitivity or m even in like in the case of the Luthic adventure, where having an additional perspective might enhance the adventure or broaden the scope of what the writer would be able to kind of commit. Yeah, we had a couple goddesses in this who their whole thing is specifically dealing with illusion or things that play with your mental health so we had a lot of mental health reading for that as well yeah that is also another podcast and <laughs> i hope i hope you guys will come back because the the door and the, there's so much in uncaged that's like very much in line with what i want to do with this show so what's the best way to uh, to make sure i get a copy of uncaged when it drops follow david and gwen on twitter so yeah, Uncaged Goddesses comes out on February 22nd, so which is Tuesday. It's coming out digitally and in print on the DMs Guild. You can follow either me or Jess or our other project lead, Gwen, on Twitter, and we'll be screaming about it over the next week <laughs> or and <laughs> into probably perpetuity. Longer. Yeah, probably longer. Yeah. And yeah, if you go to uncagedanthology.com, we'll have a link to it there as well. Excellent. My mind's still kind of blown with all of the amazing artists and writers that we got for this who want to be a part of our little book. Yeah, especially some of the artists. I'm like, what do you mean you worked on Baldur's Gate? <laughs> yeah, we have what some Baldur's Gate artists. We have... One of our writers is an original Fallout dev and writes for star trek and we're like what are you doing here well that's like when i i didn't realize ivory wrote for larian on divinity 2 and yeah 
they wrote an adventure for us. We were like, are you sure you mean to be here? You do know it's revenue <laughs> share. Are you sure? <laughs> Every adventure got their own border. And that was... And David did it. That was all me. Mad man. <laughs> yeah, there is no stock art in this book. It's, it's all David. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. That's it for episode one of season four of Making a Monster. And thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard and you want to support the show, please share it with the people you play games with. Your recommendation goes a long way to helping people trust me with their time and attention. And it's a real gift to me and the creators I feature. If you want to go deeper with the show, get stat blocks, behind-the-scenes content, and other monstrous perks, you can support me on Patreon at patreon.com slash scintilla studio. That's S-C-I-N-T-I-L-L-A studio. You can find a full transcript of this episode on my website, scintilla.studio slash monster. There, you can also use D&D to make a difference in animal conservation and the preservation of habitat by checking out Book of Extinction. It's a bestiary of extinct species brought to life again for Dungeons & Dragons. We've got a three-monster preview out already so you can see if it's a match for your table and learn about the stranger-than-fiction stories these animals encountered in real life. 